in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to be looking at an encounter between Jesus and a very select group of people within Judaism. It was the group of representatives, the Sahedrin, the, the ruling body of the Jewish way of life at the time. And Jesus brings a scathing critique towards them. But with it, he also brings an opportunity to change their worldview. To turn their uh, egocentric world inside out or right way in and up right up. Right up. You know, it's, he wants to challenge them. But when Jesus brings a challenge, it's always brought with an opportunity to change things. To turn around, to set things right. Because these guys are standing on a dangerous precipice at this moment. But as we read this passage, I want to invite you at the same time to identify yourself somewhere in the crowd when Jesus is speaking. Is, who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to you? Is what he has to say, does it resonate with you at this time? What is your response going to be when the sun comes along? So let's look at Mark chapter 12. And we're reading verses 1 to 12. I think it will come up on screen. And we do have uh, Bibles as well. Okay. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another. That one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. You can't help but feel the the tension uh, when these two parties collide. It's almost like one of the build-up to one of these boxing matches, you know, the bolster and then the, you know. <laughs> but it happens. When, these, when Jesus and the Sahedrin, when the, the, the rulers or the establishment meet, you just can't but help feel the tension that exists between them. In one corner, you've got Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, the only begotten Son, And as it says in scripture, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
And in the other corner, you have the scribes, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the establishment of the day. You know, it's a bit like as the Pope and his cardinals and his bishops are to the Catholic Church or the General Assembly is to the Church of Scotland or the Synod is to the Anglican Church. So were this Sahitran to the common Jew. And this party held power by way of position, tradition, and their association with the temple worship, which was the physical focus of the Jewish way of life at the time. These two parties carried an authority. One of them truly did, because, as I say, he is the Son of God. He is the Word of God made flesh. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. These aren't just vague titles. You know, these are things that are true about Jesus, fundamentally, seen in his character and his nature and his teaching and everything in who he is. Jesus is the real deal. And yet, these other men, they held power. They held sway by position of recognition, human endeavor, achievement, associations, family connections, rights and expectations, pacts, agreements, favors, promises, and traditions. It's funny that they claim to worship God, but yet somehow, incredibly, they failed to receive or even recognize the one they claim to worship. You know, these two parties should have been one, but yet they were poles apart. Why is that? Why is that? You know, before we explore that further, it does pose a question for us this morning. And that is, where do you stand right now in relation to the owner of the vineyard? Are you in submission to God? Who's in charge of your life? Who's the tenant and, and who's the owner, in a sense? Who's drafting the contract between you and Christ? Are you living according to his will? Or are you kind of trying to forge your own? You know, when people rise to prominence, they face a battle. One, to, to, be, to live in that sense of uh, gracious submission to what they've received and the position that they've received because it has come by way of grace. Or do they suddenly begin to get seduced by the position itself? And before you know it, that which was given as a gift becomes almost like a competition or a wrestle with God to try and hold on to what God had given them already by way of grace. And it happens in every sphere of life. In every sphere of life. And to some degree, even in every person as well. You know, when we fail to live up to the obligations the, the call of love, to respond in love towards God, suddenly we abandon it. Because what we see is what we've been given. Actually, I think I like this more <laughs> than the person who gave me it in the first place. I want to ask, where are you at this morning? Are you acknowledging the, the gracious kindness of God in your life? Do you stand in a position of Humility towards him. 
Do you recognize his kindness and his grace in everything that you have? Or are you still kind of sense snatching and grabbing and trying to establish a false sense of security of your own apart from God? You see, this, this is quite a unique parable that Jesus speaks against the chief priests. In a sense, it's a brief synopsis, if you like, of the history of Israel. The way they've always been. As you read through the Old Testament, you see this continued pattern. And it started with Jacob. Remember when Jacob wrestled with God in the river Jabbok? In some sense, his descendants have continued to wrestle with him. They've been unwilling to bend the knee to him. But it's always been most poignant amongst those who've considered themselves to be the greatest. The kings, the priests. Those who've had sway and power and influence over the people. And this parable that Jesus speaks, it would have been immediately recognizable to them. As he said, as Jesus opened up, started talking about a vineyard, it suddenly like a, a light bulb moment. Ah, I know where, they, where, where he's talking from. I know this story. And it was from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I'd like to read it to you. It will also come up on the screen. It reads, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have been, been done for my vineyard than I have done, not done for it? When I look for good grapes, why don't I yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he had cries of distress. You know, that was written 700 years before Jesus appeared. But in a sense, nothing much had changed. You know, the connotations of the vineyard would have been immediately recognizable to the hearers who were there that day listening to Jesus speak. It would have struck a chord with the establishment. You know, it's funny, when Jesus spoke in parable, it was often in a way of, like, a bit like a sift. A way of sifting out the, the people who really wanted to find out about the kingdom of God and those who were just completely disinterested. Because they needed to press in and try and say, what does he actually mean? And so Jesus would be almost teasing them to come, well, come, come, come and listen closer and I'll let me explain to you. But in this incident, he's very deliberate and he knows who he's speaking to and he's, he's almost cultivated this parable very directly for a very sort of an audience. He said, I'm talking to you. But I don't have to say that because you know I'm talking to you. You know it's you. You, you, you can't be that blind. You can't recognize what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about here. And you can almost imagine as they're standing there, the face grimaced. Shut up. 
the man undoubtedly is, is God the Father. In the vineyard are the people of God, the kingdom of God, anywhere and any people who recognize and submit to the will and the, the, the reign of God. And attendants are those whom God has put in charge of the vineyard, oversight, whether it be kings, priests, or prophets. Jesus is drawn in. I'm talking about you. Listen to what I'm saying. And up until this point, the parable would have been fairly neutral. They may have actually listened to this thing. Hey, yeah, he's talking about us, which is quite nice. <laughs> yeah, we are the, the tenants, aren't we? Yeah, we are the, the favored ones. We are the ones who have rule and sway over this great city of Jerusalem. But yet, in the same moment, he pulls a rug completely from under their feet. He reminds them of the continued sad history of Israel and those who should have known better, who should have served diligently, who should have honored God, who should have led the people well, who should have continually pointed the people towards God. But yet, those were the ones who were first to throw the stones and cast them out, the servants of God. You know, the prophets of old, Books of Isaiah, Elijah, Moses, and even John the Baptist. They tortured them. They murdered them. You know, each of them in their own time came with God's word. But they were met with derision. They were met with the threat of being stoned. The rejection of those who should have welcomed them. You know, the short life and witness of John the Baptist credited as the last of the great prophets. It's a t final testimony to this ongoing cycle of rejection. John was beheaded, yes, at the command of Herod. But nobody from the Sahedrin stood up and said, hey, wait, wait a minute, let him go. He hasn't done anything wrong. The truth is they disliked him almost as much as they disliked Jesus. You know, when the word of God comes around, how do you respond to it? We're all in the danger of often shooting the messenger, aren't we? <laughs> because it grates on us sometimes when we hear the word of God, whether we're reading it in our private devotions or somebody brings a word to us and it, mm, it grates on us. And why does it grate on us? Because it challenges something in us, sometimes something that we don't like. And what do you do in that moment? Do you sort of turn a deaf ear towards it? Do you embrace it? Do you submit to it? Or do you close the book and say, well, I'll, I'll see what tomorrow's devotion brings? You see how easily it is to impose a kind of egocentric mentality on God's word, on a Christian life. That even God's most trusted servants to those whom God had given by so much by grace. It was he who established the nation of Israel. It was he who created them into a people of his own. It was he who appointed the judges. It was he who appointed the kings. And it was always with the purpose of calling out of the people that kind of holy living lifestyle. That was the fruit he wanted to see in his kingdom. Where is it? 
This is what I asked you to encourage. This is what I asked you to cultivate in the people. But I'm not seeing it. Where is it? I'm not seeing it in you. You know, Israel was always meant to be what they call a theocracy, where God alone was in charge. He was king. They didn't need anybody else. But the people wanted a king, didn't they? A king they could see. A king like the other nations. Somebody we could aspire to be like. Maybe God ruled in name, but who really was the greatest in their minds? This morning, who's sitting upon the throne in your life? In its entirety. You know, it's easy in this context, in this environment, to you know, sing praise and worship to God. But what about when you leave? What about the rest of the week? What about in the public? What about in the personal? What about in every sphere of your life? Who is the consistent um, authority ruling over your life? How are you responding when the sun comes around? You know, there was an assumption in the parable and the many people who were listening that day, they said, yeah, yeah, of course they should honor the sun. It was like that expectation. They were in agreement with the father. Surely they'll respect my son. And the people were listening saying, yeah, yeah, of course they will. Yeah, of course they should. Yeah, that's right. Let's bring it on. Let's see what happens. But they didn't, did they? They're standing on the threshold of rejecting the son. And in doing so, they're inviting judgment upon themselves. And therein lies the opportunity to change their lives around, to turn their lives around, to repent, recognizing that they're standing on a precipice. You're, you're on the eve of making a terrible decision here. What are you going to do about it? Where is your heart this morning? Is your heart soft towards God? You know, when you consider the preeminent son, the son of God, are you recoiling from him? Do you not want his presence? Do you not want him to invite him in? Is, is he going to get a welcome? Or is he going to get snubbed? Or shied away from? You know, somebody delivered a similar parable to this many years before. And it was Nathan the prophet. If you know about the story of King David, he was a wonderful king and he was always... You know, the marker for, oh, you're going to have a great king. You are a king like David. But we know that he had disasters in his life. And Nathan came to him with a, well, in one sense, it was a parable. And he said to David, David, I, I need to tell you something. There was once a rich man who had hundreds and thousands of sheep and lambs. He was rich beyond measure. He had everything he could ever want. And he had a guest who came to visit. But instead of slaughtering one of his own lambs, you know what he did, David? He stole from a poor man who had one singular lamb. It was the only lamb that he had, and he loved that lamb. He loved it with all his heart. And that rich man stole it, and he killed it, and he murdered it, and he used it to feed his guests. You know, the funny thing is, when David heard this, he was incensed by it. He said, who is this man? Tell me. And I will bring him to justice. And Nathan said, you're that man. The difference between David and the Sanhedrin 
was that he received it. He was shocked to the core of his being. And he recognized in that moment who he was, what he'd been doing, the way he'd been living his life. He hadn't been living in submission to God. He'd been living in contention with God. And he stopped. And he submitted. And he confessed. And he turned his whole life around. In that singular moment and through that parable that God had given him, he changed the direction of his life. I wish I could say that the representatives of the Sanhedrin did the same thing, but they didn't. They didn't. They resolved. They hardened their hearts. They closed their ears. They leapt off the precipice and decided they were going to continue with their plans to murder Jesus. And so, in a sense, they brought about and fulfilled the words of the Psalm 118 that Jesus quotes. They rejected the one who turned out to be the most important one above all others. You know, it's funny as we go through this passage, and, and, and you even consider this parable, that it would even be within their frame of thought that they could be the inheritors of the vineyard if they continued with the plot that they were following. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But yet they did. And it only serves to highlight the corruption that we are so capable and prone to at times. You know, the church today needs to heed the warnings of this parable. You know, the faithlessness of the tenants proved true. The establishment was dissolved. The temple was destroyed. The power and prestige that was there was taken away, and it was given to somebody else. It was given to this new vine, this new vineyard, a strange hybrid of Jew and Greek, the church. We may be the vine, but we're also the tenants as well. And here's the thing. If the previous tenants have caused to humble themselves because of the gracious adoption of God, shouldn't we even be even more so? You know, our only qualification for being part of the vine is because somebody died for us. Somebody died. That's the only claim that I have in this vineyard, that somebody died. <laughs> and it's because of his death that I'm in it. Surely that in itself should be a cause to get on our knees and say thank you. Thank you. You know, when we think about the scribes and the Pharisees, we often portray them as like these pantomime villains, don't we? You know, yeah, boo, when the Pharisees appear. But, you know, we have to remember that these were real people. Scholars in the Scriptures. And if they could stumble and fall, should we not be more careful then in choosing to honor the Son than they? You know, you only have to take a brief scan of church history. And you see in the church, and it's all its denominations and its various expressions. You know, you see disaster and destruction when the Son is displaced in favor of something else. You know, in the 20 years that I've been a Christian, I've seen the pitfalls. I've seen them in myself, but I've seen them in others as well, sadly. 
And it's when the fixation of our eyes gets turned away from Jesus towards something else. It's like Jesus no longer the end destination, but he's just merely a compass bearing in order to help us get to that thing that we want. Maybe it's financial stability. That's an okay thing in itself. But this becomes our goal. We say, well, somebody said Jesus can help me reach wealth. Well, yeah, okay, tell me more about Jesus, but that's the thing I've got my eyes on. <laughs> somebody, somebody told me that Jesus could make me well. Well, that's the thing I've got my eyes on, but yeah, okay, if Jesus can help me get there, that's fine. Maybe it's in the realm of relationships. Well, that's the thing I've got my eyes fixed on, but if Jesus can help me get there, then that's fine. Do you see the subtle shift? Where these things in themselves are okay, but where they become the apple of your eye and the, the, your ultimate goal, Jesus becomes a means to an end as opposed to the end in himself. You know, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, let me read it to you. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw up everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. Who or what have you got your eyes fixed on this morning? Are you running towards the sun? Is he going to get a welcome from you? Or are you running away from him? Or actually, are you running in a direction where you're actually going to bypass him and miss him completely? You know, the man in the story, he expected his son to be honored and to be welcomed. What kind of reception is Jesus receiving in your life at the moment? You know, we could respond in so many different ways this morning. Maybe you just need to do some business with Jesus. You know that your relationship with him hasn't been great. I've been paying you lip service, Jesus, but you know what? You know, and I certainly know, my love towards you has been a bit of a shield of you. Maybe you need to finally admit defeat. I'm actually the tenant. You're the owner. I want to honor you. I want to give you what's your due. Maybe it's you want to see some fruit from me. He's calling something out of you this morning, and he wants to see it. He's done all the work. He just wants you to start producing it. Maybe it's a new act of service. It's all there. He wants to see it. Maybe if you've never submitted to Christ, maybe even today might be the day you will. Yeah? Shall we stand?